Now, in the aftermath of revolutions, many Arab countries face questions about how to reform themselves. Most Arab countries have what's often called a youth bulge, a massive population under 30, which outweighs its older generation. So as the Middle East rebuilds, new governments need to consider the educational and employment needs of their young people, who have been the catalysts of change throughout the region. Joining us now to discuss the needs and desires of young people in the Arab world, Raj Desai. He's a professor of international development at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Mr. Desai, welcome. Thank you very much, Magda. Pleasure to be here. Also joining us is Hairi Ubaza, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Mr. Ubaza, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your invitation. Let me begin with the simple question. It's been almost two years since Muhammad Bouazizi's death set off that tremendous wave of revolution in the Arab world that was led mostly by young people and people his age. What indications do you have that their demands are or are not being fulfilled? Um, There are significant frustrations that are among the uh, Arab youth in the Arab Spring countries. In particular, the issues of quality of opportunity, the lack of equality of opportunity, employment, obviously, underemployment. Uh, In addition, the educational system in the Arab Spring countries has, as we've known for for years, has not really prepared young people with the skills to meet the challenges of a 21st century labor force. These are obviously challenges that the entire region faces. To the extent that they're being addressed, these are long-term reforms that need to be put in place. I think most of the the new governments in the region have focused on trying to stabilize their economies. Maybe uh, Khairi will disagree, but uh, it doesn't seem to me uh, the case that the needs of the youth have been high on the priority list, uh, at least thus far. Khairi Ubaza, do you agree or disagree with that? I agree with with that uh, assessment, and I will add that all the countries of the Arab Spring are still in transition, so there are no stable governments that can... uh, carry out a clear program that would tackle the the many problems that exist in these uh, countries. And as you mentioned uh, earlier, most of the population of the Arab world in general and the Arab Spring is under the age of 30. Uh, But the change that happened since the Arab Spring is that it restored some hope among the youth of the Arab countries. And it was a hope that was lost because of the regimes that were in place. It is true that some are disappointed regarding the pace of change in these countries and the aspiration of the youth. Yet, uh, today, we are in a situation where there is some hope that is being restored and this could lead to a better situation. I wonder what you think the emergence of Islamist parties such as the Freedom and Justice Party in Egypt, what that tells us in terms of the direction that the region is headed? What do you see as the risks and benefits to their power, uh, Mr. Desai? Two things have happened. One is that the party that was extremely visible and well-known because the Muslim Brotherhood operated a social program function in a lot of these communities, they had a level of visibility. Secondly, we've also seen a a split uh, very quickly occur between if you want to call it the secular, pro-Western, or more liberal wing and the more conservative, traditional wings of the uh, anti-Mubarak movement. That happened pretty quickly. Uh, So I think we're seeing the inevitable uh, fragmenting of a 
big, broad block that led the revolution happening very quickly. Oh, interesting. Uh, Mr. Obaza, your thoughts on that? Yes, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, the entire political class in Egypt, with the exception of the Islamists, didn't want early elections, and the military wanted to do so because at the time it was in a tacit agreement with the Islamists. So this is the when when you see Islamists winning, it is the result of a lack of preparation in the transition. They did not level the political field for all political parties and groups to compete. However, the following elections uh, are more interesting because people get more used to an open debate. They see the performance of some elected officials. So I think uh, we can start judging maybe after uh, two or three elections if the democratic process continues in these countries, then we can have a better assessment of who is around and who is appealing. But right now it is difficult to assess the first post-revolutionary elections. On the one hand, there is ample evidence around the world that increasing educational opportunity for women, regardless of what country you're speaking about, has a profound effect on the development and the increase of quality of life. Just about every measure that you could apply is improved if you improve educational access to women. That seems to be more or less a fact. Maybe what I should be asking you is, what are the measures that women themselves in these countries, in North Africa, are using to say, you know, how has our position in society changed since the Arab Spring? I would actually point to two measures that are quite important in the Middle East. First, uh, the Middle East and North Africa has one of the lowest labor force participation rates for women in the world. Even in absolute terms, just women do not participate in the workforce. Uh, The second thing is asset ownership. Uh, Women do not own property or other assets to the extent that men do in the Middle East and North Africa. And when you put those two things together, it has profound effects for the character of social programs, for poverty and development. And we know from evidence all over the world that empowering women prevents poverty from transmitting itself across generations to a greater extent than providing Uh, cash transfers or tax breaks or other forms of of welfare to men. As far as education goes, I think the issue of education affects men and women both, uh, boys and girls equally in the region. Uh, We know that, again, the region underperforms. If you think about a simple thing like uh, the test of international math and science skills, which is a a test that's given to um, the primary school children uh, around the world, the Middle East and North Africa is among the worst performing uh, in the world. And it's despite the fact that they spend as much as a, uh, as much as Japan does actually in terms of public resources for education. The number of universities from the Middle East and North Africa range from about four or five to zero, uh, which is extremely bad for a a region (coughs) that once was characterized by actually very well-known universities and universities that had made huge strides in uh, in sciences and in math. Well, that links to uh, the persistent problem of very high unemployment rates amongst uh, youth in the Arab world. How much do you think that this, um, this structural educational problem uh, is, lead, is contributing to the unemployment problem? I think it's a major contributor. The problem of skills shortages in the Middle East is a profound issue for young people who are entering the, um, the workforce themselves. 
as we've seen in in the United States and in and Western Europe, when in the in the you know the recession years recently, when young people can't find jobs, they stay at home. They don't buy. They don't marry. They don't buy property. They don't move out of their parents' house. Those things, those behaviors, have adverse consequences for the whole economy. And in the Middle East and North Africa, and particularly the Arab world, we've seen this over the last four decades. So you transition from uh, childhood to adulthood, and you spend this time in so-called waithood, where you're not really a child and you're not really an adult because you are not able to seek the kind of um, long-term employment opportunities. Uh, most youth, if you ask them, would prefer to work in the public sector. Uh, for one thing, most of the constitutions, the old constitutions, uh, of the Arab countries guaranteed uh, work for university graduates, public work for university graduates. A previous Egyptian constitution guaranteed uh, a government job for uh, university graduates. Now, the waiting period has now stretched into, I think, a decade or something like that. And I think that has to change. As you both well know, uh, the economy in the United States and Europe uh, are struggling. Those economies are very much struggling. And so it's understandable that people here uh, and in you know, much of Western Europe are more worried about their local jobs and their prospect than they may be with um, conditions abroad. So why would you say that, um, you know, in the midst of this terrible recession that the United States is struggling out of, that people should continue to be plugged in and aware of what is going on um, in the Middle East. What do you think is at stake, Mr. Desai? The short-term reason for why the, uh, the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, the other, the major donors in particular, should be engaged is without some external help, these countries are facing serious economic problems. And so if we think about all of the security-related issues uh, if you think about the situation now, we can only imagine how much worse it will be if you add to that a currency collapse in Egypt or an economic crisis in other countries. So countries that are enveloped in a network of relations and ties with the outside world uh, do much better than those that are, for lack of a better term, isolated. Uh, so it's not just a matter of providing foreign aid. I think it's a matter of providing educational and cultural exchanges, uh, uh, trade, investment, uh, all of the sorts of things that we have done in the past, uh, there is, I think, an imperative for us to do that uh, this time. Mr. Ubaza? Yes, it is also important for uh, the U.S. interest to try and stabilize the situation. Uh, for this, of course, stability means uh, economic uh, prosperity. It means a certain... Uh, uh, liberties that should be uh, granted to the population there. Uh, also for other neighbors, uh, such as the European Union, it's uh, the neighbor of the Arab world, and it is crucial for them uh, to stabilize uh, that part of the world to prevent from immigrations and issues such as uh, political frustration that can lead to terrorism sometimes. And they are getting involved in the stabilizing uh, countries of the uh, Arab Spring. If I could uh, just add, uh, if we don't, other countries will. Uh, and we see this happening already. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that resources from Saudi Arabia or, the, or Qatar, for example, are, are bad, but... 
you know, it's it's a choice that uh, that all of us face in terms of what is North Africa, for example, going to look like when it is much more closely connected to Saudi Arabia and to the richer Gulf countries than it is to uh, to Western Europe or the United States. Raj Desai is a professor of international development at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Hayri Ubaza is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Gentlemen, thank you both. This hour was produced by Joseph Browdy, David Enders, Kim Fox, Martha Little, and A.C. Valdez, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to WBUR in Boston. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is America Abroad from WBUR and Public Radio International. Support for this program was provided by Qatar Foundation International, connecting cultures for global good. PRI, Public Radio International.